Just a warning, this episode may contain language or topics that may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. On December 31st of 1993, Brandon Tina was brutally murdered in Humboldt, Nebraska, along with two others, by Tom Nissen and John Lauder. This case reached national headlines and brought wide attention to hate crimes and trans issues. The journalists and media covering the case described Brandon in many different ways from woman who posed as man to cross-dresser and much more. On this episode, we explore journalistic integrity, ethics, and how society has changed and evolved since the murder of Brandon Tina. So I feel like when it comes to journalistic integrity, most journalists, I assume feel it's their duty to report information, to present information that's factual, right? They, they want to present the truth. They want to present information without bias. They want to remain objective. Sometimes that may be hard because if you are presented with information prior to, you know, your own investigation or your own research into a particular topic, right, or subject, there is always the chance that outside information or your own opinions can influence your writing or your reporting. I mean, if you have preconceived notions or or ideas about a particular group of people or, or what it means to identify in a certain way or be a part of a certain community, that could make its way into your reporting. And it contains the story. And, and it's unintentional. It doesn't mean that you intended for this to happen, right? You didn't mean to misidentify somebody or misunderstand their life or, or their struggle in life. But it happens. And what do you do years later when you realize your mistake? Do you let it go? Do you just say, well, that was in the past and no one's going to revisit this article? No one cares. It had no influence on society. Or are you going to acknowledge the fact that it did have an influence on society and you're going to do something about it? One journalist went across the country in 1994 after the murder of Brandon Tina to investigate his murder. And after she investigated the murder, she wrote an article called Love Hurts. And in this article, she talks about Brandon being a woman. Donna Minkowitz was a different person back then when she was ignorant of trans issues. Over the years, she's done a lot of reflection on the 1994 article. And in 2018, she decided to write an article called How I Broke and Botched the Brandon Tina Story. She wrote this article to apologize, but also it was more than an apology. It was to explain why she wrote the initial 1994 article as she did. Donna is a seasoned writer and journalist whose work has appeared in The Village Voice, Salon, The Nation, and the New York Times Book Review. Thanks so much, Donna, for being on the show with us today. It's really great having you. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. We just want to start off with your article that you wrote in 1994, which was 
which was huge for your career. And something that I wanted to bring up was you interchangeably use the pronouns he and she when you're speaking about Brandon. So just curious about why you did that and why you didn't stick to one pronoun. So I think I did that for two reasons. One was just because, frankly, I was very ignorant and transphobic. I really did not understand Brandon as a trans man. Um, So that was one reason. But another reason I wanted to switch back and forth is I wanted to highlight that, you know, such a personal thing as Brandon's own identity had become a point of contention between people, specifically between um, Brandon's family, who used she pronouns, and Brandon's friends, and his surviving girlfriend in Fall City, who used um, he pronouns. So, I mean, it's complicated. One of the reasons I sometimes used he and him is I wanted to honor the way Brandon wanted to be identified, but obviously I didn't understand how deep that honoring should have gone. I mean, I thought it was really interesting that like these two major factions of people surviving Brandon after he was murdered were were fighting like crazy, like almost for ownership, ownership of the body, like ownership of Brandon. Um, Who was Brandon? How, you know, how did they see him? It struck me that something, something very important was going on there, that it was such a point of contention. And I think I had my finger on something, but, you know, I didn't understand enough that that very point of contention came into how I wrote wrote the article itself. Something that's interesting is that you come from New York City. You were raised here and you're just transplanted in a small town in Nebraska in the 90s. And (laughs) so one, how was that? And two, how different were the two groups that had these different views of Brandon? Those are both really interesting questions. So I went to I went to Nebraska to do the research um, with Susan Muska, who's a filmmaker, one of the people who later made a documentary about uh, an excellent documentary about Brandon. And Susan Susan and I are both lesbians, and we both at the time looked very lesbian, very identifiably butch, and. It was hard for both of us to to be there in Fall City, Nebraska, which is which is a very conservative, very small town. We just both like were as friendly as possible. And being with Susan really helped because Susan's really good at putting people at their ease and she's a great conversationalist. So we both I had that a little bit, but Susan really had that. We both really put that forward. There was um, was a writer who later wrote a true crime book about the case. Uh, This woman's name was Aphrodite Jones. And um, the book she wrote was called All She Wanted about Brandon. And we heard that she was going around bad mouthing us to some of the other, some of the people in the case, like saying like, don't talk to them. They're lesbians. (laughs) So that's, that's pretty funny. It was hard, but, you know, but anyway, it was, it was not terrible. People did talk to us, um, especially Lana, 
Brandon's girlfriend and her family talked to us uh, a lot. They were, they were the most important people, I think, to be talking to us. I mean, the only other people who had known Brandon as well in that town were either the other two people who were murdered or the, or the killers. So we talked to the people we needed to. We had mo- one moment, Lana liked to sing karaoke. So we went to the country Western karaoke bar in Fall City, nice. where Lana usually went. We both went with her. And it was my first time singing karaoke. And, um, <laughs> you know, I was trying to pick a song where I wouldn't sound queer. <laughs> so I did. Um, I fought the law and the law won. That's a good Flash. song. That's but a then good choice. I get to the line, you know, she was the best girl I ever had. It's like, oh no. <laughs> that was a fail, huh? It's not a anyway. fail. <laughs> so anyway, we, we, we just got through it. Um, your other question about how, you know, these two groups of people and were they very different? The funny thing is the two groups, the Falls City group and the Brandon's family in, uh, in Lincoln, which was you know, a big city for Nebraska, they, I mean, sort of socially and politically, they were not that different. They were both working class. Brandon's family maybe had sort of a little bit more middle, like hopes of rising to the middle class. They'd sent Brandon to a, like a private Catholic school and Lana's family was really poor. They were on welfare. And they were more looked down on than Brandon's family. But anyway, both of the families were uh, were working class and very socially conservative. So they weren't that different. I'd say the biggest difference is Brandon's family grew up with Brandon and had a strong reaction against, you know, wishing to wishing to honor his identity as a man. And the people in Falls City, of course, not no, the people in Falls City, with the important, enormous exception of the murderers, saw Brandon as a man. I think Brandon passed as a man for them. And by, by the time they realized Brandon was trans, his maleness had already been strongly established for them. I mean, just to complicate it a little bit, I mean, Lana's mother... She was a very complicated person, especially politically. You know, she talked about how nice Brandon was, how much she loved him, you know. But on the other hand, she had all kinds of horrible biases when she found out he was trans. She said something to me like, well, I had little babies in the house and I didn't want them getting AIDS from him and, you know, stuff like that. That's interesting because that's something that I think a lot of people experience, right? Is that sort of like duality of the people close to you loving you and accepting Mm. you in some way, but then on the other hand, having these completely opposing views to, to, to you as well. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And of course, Lana and her family, they were good friends with the men who wound up killing Brandon. So that's a whole kind of horrible, <laughs> complex thing. Yeah. Everybody had different views towards Brandon in terms of understanding Brandon as either trans or lesbian. But when did, I guess, when did you have this understanding that the way that you or even, you know, the people that you were working with at the time on this 
sort of had a view that wasn't accurate of Brandon, not seeing that he was trans and just, I guess, making the assumption that he was a lesbian. You know, it really took me a while. I would say it started dawning on me in the very early 2000s. And in, I started to learn more about trans people. I met someone who I eventually married who, who knew a lot more about trans issues than me. You know, she had studied them in grad school and she, she helped inform me a lot. And at that point, I started really realizing that I had been wrong and I wanted to start informing myself about trans people. So I sort of, I did some reading and I, I consciously tried to bring trans people into my life so I could experience them more and get to know them. And I'm really glad I did that. And it made me, it made me really want to, to do some kind of public apology. And on that note, you know, when you're from a certain minority community, people expect you to be able to understand everything about that community and almost be like a champion of that mm-hmm. community. So did you feel that pressure when you wrote the article in 1994 and then also in 2018? Yes, for sure, in different ways. I mean, in 1994, I think I did not feel the pressure until after the article had come out because my ignorance about trans people was so great. Afterwards, I, I was shocked to get the criticism. I was like, what? I thought this article was championing Brandon and, um, you know, decrying his murder. I remember, you know, the... The article got a line on the cover of The Voice that week, which said, gender offender. And I meant that as something positive. Let's celebrate Brandon, how cool it is to be a gender offender. Let's champion Brandon. But trans activists took that as, uh, you know, as though I were saying something negative, as though, you know, Brandon were some kind of terrible gender offender. And I can understand why they took it that way. Because, you know, because there were so many problems with my article, but that was not, that was not how I intended it. So, so I was surprised. About the 2018 piece, yes, I was definitely frightened that I would get criticized even more for that article. That was the only thing that made me, well, there was one other thing. That was one of the only things that made me hesitate. Uh, for a second to, you know, to agree to write it was like, like, oh my God, I'm just going to get criticized even more. Because I, I had read so much criticism of myself over the years. I mean, not just in, not just in, you know, the press or articles, but, you know, in a lot of scholarly books, kind of um, queer theory books, just like, you know, I'd look in the index and there was my name and it's like, you know, Donna Mankiewicz's this horrible article about Brandon Tina. So yeah, I, I was afraid. And the one other reason I hesitated was I knew it would take a lot personally to, to be really open, both about my level of, of ignorance and, and bias and about to be personally open about 
you know, what may have been making me do different things in the piece. But on the other hand, I had wanted to, I had wanted to write an apology piece for a long time. So I think I only hesitated for about five minutes. How did you survive all of that criticism? First, like I say, I was really defensive. Like, oh my God, you know, I can't, can't believe this. It was difficult. I mean, around the time, let's see, I did happen to, I left the, the voice to, to write a book shortly, shortly after the article came out, I guess I'd say within the next six months. And I wrote the book on an unrelated topic. So I think that helped. Then in 2000, I got a disabling injury, which kind of put me out of commission for a few years. So I was kind of um, out of that world. But it, you know, it, I mean, it was definitely hard to be, to be criticized, to see this so much around me. I'm really glad I finally got over it. You know, I didn't just stick to, you know, well, they must be wrong and they're full of shit. It's all on them. Yes. Yes. Obviously, the 90s was a different time than it is now. And what was the climate in the 90s in terms of the general understanding of transitions? It was really different, completely different. I mean, I should add that, of course, not everyone was as badly informed as me. So I don't want to put this on everyone. But I'd say that I had two assumptions that were that were pretty widely shared at the time. One was that people were trans if they, if they did some kind of physical intervention to their body, if they took hormones or had surgery or both. There was very little understanding that some trans people didn't or chose not to change their bodies. So that was one big reason why I didn't accept Brandon as trans at the time. I don't think he, I mean, I don't have all the information completely, but I don't think Brandon did any physical interventions. And I also didn't understand that transphobia and kind of a lot of social pressure might have made someone like Brandon say different things about his transition to different people at different times, you know, which he did, you know, to different, different friends and girlfriends, especially he would say, you know, like, well, I'm, I'm almost done with the transition or I have this or, or sometimes he said like, you know, I was born with an extra hormone. I mean, he said all kinds of different things. And because he said different things, I kind of just took it that he was lying rather than you know, there, I mean, it's hard. I'm sure it was really, really hard to be a very young trans man in Nebraska in, in 1993. So of course there were reasons why, you know, he said different things to, to different people and trying to ex explain himself to them. But anyway, that was part of the understanding at the time. There was little knowledge of trans people who didn't take any hormones. There was kind of there was a little bit more awareness in the queer community starting of trans men who might not get genital surgery, but took hormones, but no, but very little of like, oh, you don't have to do anything to your body to identify as trans or be considered trans or 
have the, the gender identity that feels right to you. So that was one thing. Another wide misconception that I shared was that all trans people were straight. I mean, I think some of what we were seeing in the 90s was trans people on talk shows. And the talk show host would say something like, well, you know, look at this person. He looks like a normal man. And look, here's his wife. And, you know, look, there's, there's her, there's her boyfriend. And wow, they're so normal. And that was the line a lot. And, and that was one reason I and many cis queer people at the time also were afraid on some level that some people were identifying as trans in order to be straight and normal instead of instead of be be queer. I mean, we I don't know, I'll say I, you know, I I had no idea that trans people came in all sexual orientations and that, you know, no, people people weren't doing this to be more socially acceptable or be more normal. And some trans people you know, saw themselves as conventional and normal, and and some didn't. Your article in 1994 was known to inspire Kimberly Pierce, the director of (laughs) Boys Don't Cry. So that's huge, because that movie was huge. And it really exposed to the general public about, well, one, Brandon Tina's story, and then also (laughs) about trans issues. So how did that influence the rest of your career? You know, to be honest, it wound up not having that much of an impact for a couple reasons. I mean, it was a shot in the arm to me when I, you know, when I found out that Kimberly Pierce said this, but she actually didn't say it for quite a while. You know, I think years after the movie came out. So, so I had no idea. And I mean, if if I had known at the time the movie came out, I think I would have been really excited. I happen to really like the movie, think it's really strong, although I know some people have criticized it. But for me personally, the movie, my article uh, having, you know, inspiring the movie in some way didn't translate into kind of extra commercial success. I mean, I think one reason was, you know, this did Pierce didn't talk about it publicly for a while. And another reason was I got this disabling injury that, you know, at the time that put me out of the world of journalism mostly for a while. So I remember being a young kid in the 90s and, you know, not knowing much about trans issues, not knowing anything really. And I remember at the time being a kid, people, you know, everybody makes jokes, right? Because nobody understands. Mm-hmm. And not to say that the vast amount of people in America had that sort of reaction, because I I can't speak for everybody, but would you say that your article had an effect on the way that trans people were seen at the time? Meaning not in, not in a, obviously not intentionally negative, right? But, or not even intentionally positive. It's just an you wrote an article. So do you think that it had any effect at all on the way people understand trans issues? I've been trying to answer that question in my in my mind. I don't know. On the one hand, I know that my article was hugely influential in how people saw Brandon Tina. 
And Kimberly Pierce was the one who, who wound up making the movie. But at the time, time I kept getting calls from these Hollywood people. I, it actually was incredibly frustrating. People would call up and say, like, I'm from Madonna's production company. I'm interested in, you know, optioning your article. Anyway, I did not get any bucks. I did have an option for a year with one film company, but anyway, it wasn't for any money and they didn't make the movie. And Kimberly Pierce did and good for her. It was a, it was a fantastic movie and I don't own the rights to Brandon's story. It was, it was Brandon's life. But I mean, in terms of the effect, I mean, at the time for a couple of years in the nineties, I would say so. I mean, on the one hand, I mean, I think my article portrayed Brandon in a, in a positive light as someone who was leading, leading the kind of life he wanted to and who should not have been raped and murdered. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, it did buttress and put out a lot of misconceptions into the world. And I'm sure that had an effect as well. I think that Brandon Tina's story being thrust into the public eye, right? All of America is is aware of what happened in Nebraska and people are, you know, trying to, trying to read the news, watch the news, read articles, find out what's going on to maybe get an understanding at the time of how Brandon identified himself, how the people around him identified themselves and just understand the case in general. And so I think that whatever people read, especially in the nineties, right. It's a different time. The influence of, of whatever that, right. Yep. That, you know, it has an effect. Yeah. And after the article came out, I remember there were a lot of talk shows. Lana's family were flown to New York to be on some talk shows and talk about Brandon. I think probably Brandon's mother, Joanne, was on some talk shows too. Yeah. So, so it definitely was being talked about. I think it really want to say. I mean, I don't want to defend my article too much, but I do think it I do think it made people supportive of Brandon and to that extent, you know, certainly supportive of of trans people living the kind of life they wanted to, you know, without either I think people were horrified by the the sheriff's treatment of Brandon, how he you know, he called Brandon and it, and he, you know, basically refused to refused to investigate his rape or apprehend the rapists, which would have prevented the, the murder, because certainly one reason why they they sought out Brandon to kill him was because he had he had gone to the police about the rape. When you wrote your 1994 article and you received the criticism that you received you know, you dealt with it in your own way. And you didn't have to write an apology letter. You didn't have to write something, but you did. And honestly, I think that's brave. And that's also one of the reasons why we're talking to you, because that's not common. But what was the actual trigger? What was the moment that made you say, I need to write something about this? Well, I do want to say that before I wrote the apology article, I had actually apologized to the trans community about four years previously in an interview with the San Francisco Bay Guardian, which is basically the, um, uh, the queer paper in the Bay Area. 
I was on a book tour and I was interviewed by the paper. And at the end they said, you know, do you want to say anything else? And I just said, I, you know, I want to apologize to the trans community for the way I did this article. So I did that, but nobody really noticed. And I definitely wanted to do something bigger. And I knew that would entail writing something. I'm trying to think if I remember the specific moment. I mean, I thought about it. I thought about it for years. It may have been after I, I mean, like I mentioned, I was making an effort to to have trans people in my life and to, you know, to understand uh, much more about trans people. And I, I had a trans male writing student. I, um, I teach memoir writing and I worked with a student both in my classes and also, um, also privately on his memoir. And we became friends and, you know, just, I mean, getting to know him, I think, I mean, that was one thing I I hoped I would get out of getting to know him, but I understood on such a fundamental level, he's not a lesbian, you know, he's not a cis lesbian. He's, you know, he's a, he's a trans man who's, you know, mostly straight. He's bi, but he's mostly straight. And, you know, I really like him and, you know, perhaps there are some things we share as people, but he's different than me. He's really different than me. And I think probably getting to know him brought it home for me how how wrong I had been. When I was younger, I think I had a lot much, uh, I think I had much more shame. My public image when I was writing for The Voice, my public image was much more important to me. And I was much more terrified of appearing bad or um, imperfect in public. But now that I'm older, I'm less afraid of that. And it feels so much better to not have that shame and that constant worry about looking bad. I mean, on the other hand, it's hard because now we're in the time of social media, um, you know, like especially Twitter. I hate, I hate how mean people are to each other on Twitter and that they think like somehow like, this is just good politics. Like, it's like, no, you don't organize people by being mean to them. <laughs> but, but yeah, I, as I got older, I got, I got less scared of have, having my flaws acknowledged in public and, and more wanting to take responsibility for them, I guess. You feel like you didn't have much to lose? Didn't have much to lose. I mean, in terms of this story, I definitely had more to gain by writing about it this way. But I definitely, I wasn't as worried about, about being vulnerable. There is one thing I wanted to bring up. This trans male philosopher, Jacob Hale, he wrote about Brandon actually back in the late 90s. In this piece, I find really fascinating Uh, I forget the exact title, but he basically was talking about sort of uh, what he called the borderline between butch, cis, lesbian identity and trans male identity. And he wanted to acknowledge that it wasn't necessary politically to keep a rigid border there. Like, who's here? Who's there? Do we have any commonality? 
And I mean, this article that he wrote is very old, and I'm not sure what he would say now, but it seemed important to me. Also, because there are a few people who identify as both trans, sort of as both trans and in a way butch lesbian, or the late Leslie Feinberg, you know, identified as kind of as a trans man and a butch lesbian at once and good for Leslie. So not everyone wants to do this, but I like throwing in the mix the idea that our identities can be porous at some points and, you know, we don't have to rigidly police the borders. I've never really been into specific labels or ways of identify, you know, it's just sort of, mm. you are who you are and everybody's different. Everybody right. can be who they want to be. And, and there's, there shouldn't be so many rigid categories for, for people. I find that interesting too. I mean, I am someone who sometimes has had what I call a male identity yet I identify as a woman and I say she And, you know, sometimes I feel like a woman and sometimes I feel like a man or a boy. And there are other people who have somewhat similar experiences who might identify now as non-binary or trans. But I don't. Maybe if I'd been born younger, I would identify as non-binary. But yeah, it's okay. You know, identities proliferate and they and they change. They also change in history. And I think that's fine. You know, I don't identify as much as Butch as when I was younger, but it's still in me, you know? <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> it stuck with you, huh? Yeah, right, right. <laughs> I was leaving my therapist's office and I got an email from an editor at The Voice who who'd been a colleague when I was writing for The Voice. And I remember, you know, like I was downstairs in the building lobby, you know, looking at my phone and I was very tense and very excited. And I said, I I hesitated for five minutes. (laughs) And then I said, yes, because I had, I had wanted to do it for so long. And I was excited to be able to do it in the, in the voice that felt, you know, complete. Full circle. Yeah. Are you satisfied? I am satisfied. Yes. I meant about um, the article, not about your life. I mean, if you want to talk about oh, that. Oh, no, 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 I know. <laughs> no, I, I am satisfied about the article. Um, no, I'm really grateful to that editor, Neil DeMoss. You know, I had known him at The Voice and uh, we had become Facebook friends and I really liked him. And uh, he's a, a cis straight guy. And he just said they they really wanted to, to do something for the, the 25th anniversary of Brandon's death. And they wanted me to do it. And Neil was a really good and sensitive editor and he let me write the kind of piece I I wanted to write and I am satisfied you know no one clamped down on me to say like don't make it so personal or you know be more bland (laughs) so yeah I wrote the piece I wanted to and and I apologized I think 
more deeply than I thought I probably would have been able to. So, so I do feel complete with it. It's always good to feel complete. Yeah. What was your journey going from New York to Nebraska? How does that happen? Does your boss say go and you go? (laughs) Um, Well, so I was at the voice and I was, um, I was in this like weird hybrid position between like staff and freelancer. I was called a bargaining unit freelancer, which means I, I was a member of the union and I had, I actually got health insurance and I had some benefits like vacation, but I didn't get paid like a yearly salary. I just got paid per article, which wound up to be like, not that much for a whole year. I don't know why I was explaining that, but anyway. You just wanted to talk to us about your struggles. Yes. Yes, that's right. My editor, Richard Goldstein, he was like the czar of all things queer at The Voice. And he showed me this article. It was an AP piece that had been reprinted in the New York Times about Brandon Tina. And the headline was something like, woman lives as a man, has girlfriends, and is killed for it or something. Hmm. And both Richard and I were really fascinated by this piece. And he wanted to send me to Nebraska. And... I was delighted. I found it. I found it really interesting at that this person had been living this way in a very small town in Nebraska. Um, so I called the Voices travel agent, and I got a I got a plane ticket, and I I did research on Brandon's family and friends. And I don't drive, and I knew I needed somebody to drive with. And I asked Susan Muska, who was a, a videographer at um, an organization in New York called Dyke TV. And she was really excited and she went with me. Yeah. And we just spent a couple of days in Lincoln interviewing Brandon's mother and sister. And we went to, um, we went to Brandon's old high school. And I think I interviewed the principal who said like, and the, the principal really, really did not want to talk about Brandon. And uh, then we went to Fall City. And we eventually, you know, interviewed uh, Lana and, um, and Lana's family and some other people and uh, looked at the looked at the murder scene, you know, which was intense. Yeah. You know, it was marked off by a police tape. And we went back to Lincoln and not many people know about Brandon's gay cousin, Maury. We found, we found Maury um, and interviewed him. It was really interesting. It sounds like Brandon and Maury were really good friends. Brandon would go with Maury to gay bars, you know, enjoyed it. And I think Maury, like of all the people in the story, Maury understood Brandon as, as a trans man in a, in a very complete way. Some of the things uh, Maury said about Brandon, you know, also also put me off and probably influenced the way I wrote the story. He said that when, you know, Brandon and him were going out to clubs and Brandon saw lesbians, that Brandon was really turned off by the lesbians. He found them disgusting or shameful or something. 
I mean, it sounds now like Brandon, Brandon had some bias against lesbians. Okay. But at the time, probably, you know, I was mad <laughs> to hear that Brandon said this. Oh, yeah. And I yeah. also, um, I kind of leapt to interpreting it as like, oh, Brandon was a lesbian with self-hate issues. That's why, you know, he was so disgusted and so on. You thought he was repressing it. Repressing it. I mean, especially since Brandon was apparently fine with, with gay men. But anyway, I mean, in my, in my first article, I did a lot of psychologizing, which, which wound up to not be, you know, not be very helpful or rooted in, rooted in reality. And that was some of it, I think. I mean, I have a question that I think has been on my mind. Ever since I first met you, you never got the chance to meet Brandon Tina. Would you have wanted to? Yeah, I would have wanted to. When I was writing the original piece, I was very conscious that I was writing a portrait of someone who had been killed, you know, someone who who was dead. So I was writing a portrait of someone I would never meet and that is a very strange thing to do. I think it is really hard to get such a portrait right. You know, although I, you know, I certainly brought my own, brought my own barriers and problems uh, to getting it right. But if I had met Brandon, I like to hope I would have understood better that Brandon was a trans man. I'm also curious about, about Brandon, what Brandon was actually like. One of the things that drew my interest to the story was they had all the quotes, all these quotes from the former girlfriends. And Brandon had lots of former girlfriends. Apparently, he was really a ladies' man. And, and these quotes, as a journalist, it is hard to tell when you read other journalistic accounts if the journalists are kind of schmaltzing it up or if the person was really like this, especially if the person is dead. Um, but anyway, these quotes from the girlfriends were things like, he was the best lover I ever had, and he was so handsome and so charming, and he was the best boyfriend. You know, he never pressured me for sex and, you know, this and that, and always gave me presents. And this image of this very, very charming, very handsome person who, who women really liked. I mean, you know, these were very, these are very young women. Some of them were teenagers, you know, and Brandon himself was very young. But anyway, that's some of what drew me and my editor to the story. And I mean, from pictures, Brandon was Brandon was incredibly handsome, and I believe he was very charming. I would have liked to have known what, what he was like as a person and what he would have hoped his life would have been like in many ways, not at all just in terms of gender identity. I remember um, when I was writing the 2018 piece, in some of my notes, I came across the fact that Brandon had really liked to draw which I had forgotten. So it's like, oh, Brandon liked to draw. I had no idea. Did Brandon want to be an artist? And then, I mean, 
there were some things about the way Brandon often treated his girlfriends as the relationships went on that that were not so positive that I did portray in my piece. And if I had gotten to meet Brandon, you know, I would have liked to have gotten to know more about what that was all about. He was a real person facing many, many difficulties. Some of them were economic. He didn't really have a source of income. His family was poor and he didn't go to college. And, and a lot of, I mean, a lot of the reason why it was hard for him to get a job was because he was trans, you know, and then the other, you know, the other huge thing he was facing that had such an impact on how he lived was, was transphobia because he would keep facing when he would, you know, when he would date a different young woman, he would keep facing sort of at some point, like a posse would form of this woman's friends, like kind of going to her and like kind of ritually telling her, oh, he's, he's a girl. He's really a girl. And probably at that point, the woman knew what Brandon's body was like, but there were, there were these weird little, as I say, these weird little transphobic posses. So Brandon was constantly facing this kind of threat, which I think sometimes was a, a physical threat. So I think possibly related to both of these things, Brandon sometimes stole money from his girlfriends, you know, like he would, he would steal their checks or sometimes, you know, buy lots of presents, but put it on their credit card without telling them. And, you know, just he was having a hard time and he had a lot going on. And like all of us, I'm sure it could have benefited from a great therapist. And uh, it would have been neat to gotten to talk to him about what his life was, was really like. But it also, I mean, particularly it would have been really neat if he could have grown up and gotten into a position where he had had more support. I think it would have been interesting for him to see how trans issues are portrayed in 2022. Oh, I think he'd be, I think he'd be thrilled. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. totally. Yeah. No, it is an odd, it is odd writing about people who are people who, people who are dead, people who've been killed. I, I did two other um, articles about people who were killed in hate crimes. One was Julio Rivera, who was a, a, a young gay man who was um, murdered in, in an anti-gay attack in, uh, in Jackson Heights, Queens in the early 90s. I think he was murdered in 1990. And another one was about, I went to Laramie, Wyoming to write about Matthew Shepard. I mean, those cases were the same, that I definitely felt handicapped trying to trying to portray someone who who was dead, who had been killed. Yeah. And all of those three boys or men that you just mentioned come from yes. different backgrounds, right? Brandon yeah. comes from a poor white family. Matthew mm-hmm. Shepard came from not, you know, a fairly well off yeah. family. And that's right. Rivera um, was Latino. He was, Puerto Rican. he was Puerto Rican. He was a 28-year-old bartender and sometimes sex worker who's murdered by three, three white teenage 
skinheads. Wow. Yeah, it was horrible. And I think his murder inspired a lot of activism to get the, the police and the DA to, to take hate crimes against queer people seriously, you know, because at first, like, they weren't looking for the killers, they weren't prosecuting it, and then, then they did. I think we had talked about this before, Chandi, where we had our initial chat with you. Like, there mm-hmm. were other things that we also found really interesting. What? we've seen or noticed is that you have this I mean you're like a maverick because you're doing things that are not just the status quo doing something that may put yourself at risk you're doing things like infiltrating you know a right-wing group because you're naturally curious and you want to expose or you want to teach the public about this community so it seems like we see that common thread in the work that you do. And I think that's also what you did with Brandon Tina. Really, like, I don't know if it would have come to light if you hadn't written your article in the first place. I think the story would have been less well known. Yeah, I mean, I like to, do like to explore, I do like to explore social and cultural places that are really different from mine. One of the reasons I started writing about the right wing was, I mean, on the one hand, I I was terrified of them, but I was also really curious, you know, like when I started writing about the Christian right, why would like they spend all this energy just trying to take rights away from gay people? What do you get out of that? So it's really curious. And also, you know, like, you know, some of them did their religion in these weird ways that were kind of cool, like getting the spirit and pretending to speak in ancient Babylonian. (laughs) And, and, you know, it's really interesting to be a person in contemporary culture who, you know, is saying that God is speaking to you directly and you experience it. I mean, you know, it can be terrible if you, you know, if you say that you know what God wants and nobody else does. But I like that they were willing to be to be weird. And I have not been I've not been very good about branding in my career because I've written about all kinds of different things, you know, and done different kinds of writing. But I also like that because I really get bored if I did the same kind of writing all the time. At one point in the early 90s, I did a really, really big article in The Voice about ACT UP. And I, I had been involved in ACT UP and I, I was really passionate about ACT UP. I still like it's my kind of like one of my favorite political groups ever. Uh, but anyway, publisher approached me like, you know, do you want to write a book about ACT UP? And I didn't want to write a book about ACT UP. I wrote this article <laughs> like that was enough. I was like, I don't want to spend a whole year writing about ACT UP. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, in a way, sometimes, sometimes I wish I were different. <laughs> so I. I could be, you know, more known for one thing. But on the other hand, I'm also really happy that now I do memoir writing and I I just finished the first draft of a a very strange memoir that um, <laughs> anyway, that I hope I'll I'll get published. 
look forward to reading it. Is there anything you think that you we should have asked you, but we didn't? <laughs> so yeah, I I kind of wanted to talk about masculinity in the lesbian community and and masculinity for trans men. And you probably know in the past few years, every once in a while, there's there's sort of a ruckus um, around a cis lesbian will write an article saying something like, all the butch lesbians have disappeared because they're all becoming trans um, men. And, you know, this is terrible. And basically, masculine lesbianism is dying. And, and I just wanted to address that idea for a minute. I mean, one thing that I think is important to say is that cultures and identities, how different people and communities see themselves change over time, all the time. And an ancient Roman man who had sex with men saw himself really differently than like, you know, like a Native American burdash in North America in in the 18th century or, you know, contemporary gay man in Brazil today. So, I mean, I certainly don't want to blame trans people or trans men for anything, you know, happening among lesbians and how we see each other, uh, we see ourselves differently. I mean, I, I am a little weirded out that some younger queer women seem to think that the word lesbian like somehow means that you're anti-trans. I think this is really weird. I don't think there's any reason for it. I mean, the only lesbian, lesbian does suggest that someone identifies as female. So queer covers more people, um, you know, and it, it also can more readily cover non-binary people than, than lesbian can. You know what? I think it's fine. People should call themselves however they want. Sometimes I call myself queer. Sometimes I call myself lesbian. I mean, around around butches, I don't know. I mean, maybe as a fashion or a style, there are fewer like lesbian butches on the street. But to me, it's just like it's not that different from how languages change all the time and we can't we can only read Chaucer with a dictionary so it's like I'm sure there will be some incarnation of masculine queer women in the future and I don't think we have to worry about that yeah I think things definitely do change over time people change over time communities and society change yeah totally totally yeah I think the analogy to how language changes over time is is really insightful that so it's almost as if that it's expected that language around you know trans issues or the lgbtq plus community will change or because it has changed yeah it will change yes it has changed you know in 20 years it'll probably be totally different (laughs) donna thank you so much thanks for being on the show yeah thank you um you're very welcome Thanks to Donna for such a compelling conversation. We got a lot of insight into Donna's mindset at the time of her article in 1994 and at the time of the later article in 2018. Besides the many articles she's written, Donna is also the author of Growing Up Gollum, How I Survived My Mother, 
Brooklyn, and some really bad dates. She's also the author of Ferocious Romance, which won a Lambda Literary Award. And she is currently working on an amazing new book that is tentatively titled Donaville, which you can find excerpts to on her website, and we will give you the link on our website in the show notes. Don't forget to subscribe, like, or follow us on whatever platform you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to another episode of Bound by the Book. See you next time.